Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Central Valley farmers and Southern California water users may see some steep rate hikes ahead. They and other state water project water customers might be on the hook for the costs of the majority of the repairs at Oroville Dam, and that could total hundreds of millions of dollars. Why? All because the federal government says they won't cover those costs. We'll explain. The wet California winter is a combination of good news and bad news for the state's farmers. We'll tell you who likes it and who doesn't. The EPA is proposing making gasoline that contains 15% ethanol available year-round. But farmers and rural residents who own typical small farm implements, such as chainsaws, mowers, tillers, and more, need to be very careful about what you put in those fuel tanks. We'll tell you why. We have all that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Well, there's good news and bad news regarding payment for all the repairs and upgrades at Oroville Dam, and that includes the two spillways that suffered extensive damage during the heavy rains back in February of 2017. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, says they will pay $205 million for those spillway repairs. The bad news? They won't cover $306 million in costs that they claim were not eligible for reimbursement. FEMA has said all along that they would not cover the costs if the damage was caused not by storm damage, but by lack of ongoing maintenance, as cited in the 2018 forensic team report that studied the dam's near failure. Originally, the state wanted FEMA to pay 75% of the cost of the project, with the state water project customers picking up the balance. But now, state water project customers, and that includes many Central Valley farmers, as well as the giant Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, could end up with greatly increased rates. The Department of Water Resources says they'll continue to work with FEMA to support the department's assertion that all construction work should be eligible for reimbursement. For U.S. rice this current marketing year, fewer export sales than expected, but record high U.S. purchases of foreign rice. USDA Outlook Board Chairman Seth Meyer told us first. We trimmed exports this month as the Chinese compete against us in some Mediterranean markets, even Korea, even in our own U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. So it looks like the U.S. will export about 2 million hundredweight less rice than had been expected, still about 12.5% more than a year ago. Meanwhile, U.S. rice imports could be a record, partly because of a long-run trend in growth of aromatic imports as some folks in the U.S. take a liking to aromatics. Types of rice with nut-like flavors and aromas like jasmine rice from Thailand. So we've got lower than expected U.S. rice exports, higher imports. And that's what's pushing up carry-out stocks in the U.S. to a pretty big level. To levels not seen since the 1980s in the midst of the farm crisis. Nonetheless, USDA raising its average rice price forecast a dime to 12.20 a hundredweight, still 70 cents below last season. Gary Crawford, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The USDA's Brad Rippey takes a look at the national weather picture for the week ahead. This covers the time period from March 19th through the 25th. It looks like that the quiet weather pattern that will be emerging later this week should last for quite some time, and it looks fairly tranquil as we.
we head into the uh, latter portion of March. Temperatures may be a bit on the, the cool side, uh, near or below normal temperatures expected across much of the central and eastern United States. We will see some warmth developing, however, across the west. In terms of precipitation patterns between March 19th and 25th, uh, generally near or below normal precipitation across the northern plains and much of the eastern half of the country. Wetness will be mostly confined to South Florida, the Pacific Northwest, Northern uh, California, and perhaps some above normal precipitation possible across drought areas of the southern plains. And you heard Brad Rippey mention that there is a chance of rain in Northern California. Those showers should extend down through the entire Sacramento Valley, including Sacramento, with rain a possibility March 21st through the 26th. And for the most part, overnight low temperatures, though, will be around 50 degrees. If you thought this was a particularly wet winter, you weren't just imagining it. We are coming off our wettest U.S. winter on record. That was USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. Meteorological winter runs from December through February, and based on preliminary data, we saw just over nine inches on average of precipitation across the lower 48 states. And that just barely gets past the old record that was set during the strong El Nino winter of 1997 Nine inches. He says three of the top five rainiest years on record came during El Nino years. This winter, of course, along with 1997-98, then number five on the list is another strong El Nino year, 1982-83. The other two winters in the top five, you have to go all the way back to the 1930s. 1931-32 and 36-37, which just happened to be extremely cold, snowy winters across the country. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, there's more good news about the wet winter we've had. Heavy rains will keep replenishing groundwater aquifers and benefit projects that use excess surface water to recharge the groundwater basins. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that water managers tell them those projects are key to addressing California's groundwater woes. Groundwater recharge is driven by precipitation and runoff. Precipitation also influences the amount of active recharge that can be applied. And with all the rain we've had this year, much natural recharge is already taking place. This means more water will be available for farmers. And with that excess water, they can do more on-farm recharging. Now, not all California farmland can support on-farm recharging systems. That involves flooding orchards, vineyards, and fallowed land in January and February. For that sort of recharge to take place, the soil must be coarse, have a good percolate, and the soil must be level. Fortunately, many of these soil traits exist in the southern San Joaquin Valley, where groundwater depletion is most critical. And one UC Davis researcher has noted that after analyzing groundwater data following 2017, which has been the wettest year on record so far for Northern California, well levels rose 10, 20, and in some cases, 30 feet, and that's a lot. With the official end of the Western Mountain snowpack season approaching on April 1st. By the time it's all over, we may approach the impressive 2016-17 season for overall Western snowpack as one of the greatest years really on record.
due, according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, by a tremendously cold and snowy February across the western U.S. that greatly improved snowpack levels in places of concern. For instance, in the north. They did get a little bit of a late start to the snow accumulation season. They've made up a lot of the ground, but we still see a few basins in the northern Cascades of Washington and the northernmost Rockies that are still reporting average to slightly below average snowpack. These areas, though, have not really been in a significant drought in the recent past. You know, a lot of that moisture is going to go into the reservoirs and should help out with the water supply situation. And the Four Corners region of the southwest. We have some lingering drought across the Four Corners region. So when this abundant snowpack begins to melt here over the next few weeks, initially that will go into recharging soil moisture as well as replenishing stream flow. So we won't immediately realize all of the benefits of this beginning to run off. But even in those hard hit drought areas, we do expect some improvement in those low reservoir levels in states like New Mexico and Arizona. And when it comes to the western mountain snowpack season to date, the heaviest precipitation by far has fallen across the middle one-third of the west, generally stretching from the Sierra Nevada eastward through the central Rockies region. California has already achieved a well above normal snowpack with a month to go in the season. Rippey says, however, there is one remaining area of concern when it comes to lingering drought and below normal snowpack and potential spring and summer water supply. Just across that lower part of the southwest, primarily in southern New Mexico, there we have not seen the abundant accumulation that we've seen in areas not too far to the north. So with the reservoirs still running low from protracted long-term drought and some subpar snowpacks in the southernmost Rockies of New Mexico, that will be kind of a hot spot for any remaining western drought. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, the almond bloom is over in most of California. The latest Blue Diamond Growers Almond Report says all varieties have lost most of their petals. No viable flowers are left for pollination. One Modesto area Blue Diamond Almond Grower stated that this year's bloom provided limited pollination. If it wasn't raining, it was windy. If it wasn't windy, it was cold. That sentiment sums up the general outlook of almond bloom through most of California. As tough as the weather made pollination activity when bees were able to work, they had plenty of open flowers on all the varieties to forage. Bees are starting to seek other pollen sources where available as the almond flowers get blown off. And the latest Blue Diamond Almond Marketing Report states that this year's strong demand will continue. Although the supply looks to be 30 million pounds smaller than last year's 2.2 billion pounds, prices should remain firm going into the harvest of 2019. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. The Washington Post reports that the Trump administration is seeking to cut the Department of Agriculture's discretionary budget by $3.6 billion. That's 15% from the 2019 estimate, while also slashing by $17.4 billion the funds available to the food stamp program known as SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Not only that, the 2020 budget proposal also reduces federal crop insurance subsidies with a projected savings of $22 billion by 20. 29, as well as cutting spending for conservation programs and foreign food aid. Subsidies protect farmers against loss of crops due to natural disasters or loss of revenue because of declines in the prices of agricultural commodities. 
Data released by the Department of Agriculture indicates net farm income could rise 10% this year to roughly $69 billion following a 16% decline in 2018. But American Farm Bureau Federation Chief Economist John Newton says these early projections offer a best-case scenario. It's important for folks to remember that this is a very, very early estimate of what farm income could look like in 2019. USDA assumes in this forecast record production of livestock products. They assume trend yields for many of the major field crops. And then they also assume slightly higher prices for many of the commodities except for pork and soybeans. Newton says there are many uncertainties that could change this outlook. The expectation is for slightly higher farm income in 2019, but this is still a really early estimate. A number of uncertainties remain when you think about weather conditions, you think about acreage allocations, and ultimately we need to see these tariffs removed for us to continue to serve those key export markets. He says the forecast also shows a low return on assets for farmers and ranchers. USDA's most recent projections have U.S. farmer on average return to assets of about 1.3 percent. That's about half what you get from the U.S. Treasury equities and well below the average rate of return for many other financial instruments. And this is at a level that we haven't seen since the 80s and 2000s. So return on assets remains very, very low. Michael Clements, Washington. September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. And indeed, in that same decade, they made it July 24, 1969. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy on the ground. It took seven years of the most intense scientific and technical work and about $25 billion for that moonshot. Now, let's uh, take the time machine forward to just a few days ago. I'm working hard to persuade the administration that we need a moonshot for ubiquitous broadband across the United States of America everywhere you go. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue at a conference in Washington, D.C., a conference of the National Association of Counties. He said in some rural areas all across the country. You've got uh, kids uh, driving to town maybe 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 miles in to do their homework, maybe in a parking lot of, of a barred Wi-Fi service. Because those kids don't have access at home to high-speed Internet, putting those kids at an educational disadvantage right off the bat. He said the digital divide between rural and urban America is very wide. He thinks it's widening and actually is wider than is currently being reported. He and others say the maps that describe areas of the country with high-speed Internet coverage and those without are, at best, inaccurate or incomplete indicating some areas do have access when they really don't. And so uh, that was Greg Cox there, that last voice. He's president of the National Association of Counties. He announced his group has just released a new mobile app to address that issue. It's called Test It. And it does what it says. With the click of just one button, you can test your broadband speed from anywhere in this country. That data will be collected from hopefully millions and millions of phones. No personal contact information is collected through this app. But the data, the measurements, will give a much more accurate nationwide picture of where the unserved or underserved areas actually are. Agriculture Secretary Purdue certainly is endorsing the new app. Test it can be immensely helpful because 
Those unserved areas and underserved areas are exactly what we're looking for. As target areas for new programs to get broadband. To every home, every hamlet, every field across America. He said we need it. And we need it now. In Washington, Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Down in the Southern California deserts, the California Farm Bureau Federation reports that a cooler-than-usual winter there has altered vegetable production schedules. Farmers say their harvests have been running more slowly than usual, in part because chilly morning temperatures have forced the crews to wait to start picking lettuce and other crops until later in the day. Wholesale markets for vegetables have reflected the colder weather, and farmers say the weather will also extend that desert harvest season. USDA is taking additional steps to keep African swine fever from entering the United States, even as the disease spreads internationally. Maybe we need to redouble the efforts in the light of African swine fever and the threat that it's presenting to us. That was Greg Ibaugh, USDA Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs. We now have 40 labs across the United States that are capable of doing tests for African swine fever. So that's an extreme beef up from where we were. I think it was, that gives us the capability of doing 35,000 tests per day if we would need to. African swine fever is a highly contagious and deadly viral disease that affects both domestic and feral pigs. It can spread via contact with the body fluids of infected animals or from ticks that feed on infected animals. The World Organization for Animal Health says the disease is currently reported in Africa, Asia, and Europe. The sickness does not affect humans, but pig infections could affect pork prices and supply. USDA will continue working to develop accurate and reliable testing procedures to screen for the virus in grains, feeds, and additives, as well as in swine oral fluid samples. USDA also is working with Customs and Border Patrol to train and add 60 additional beagle teams to sniff out illegal pork products at key commercial sea and airports. This would bring the total to 179 beagle teams at ports of entry. Another aspect of USDA's stepped-up efforts includes working closely with officials in Canada and Mexico on a coordinated approach to keep African swine fever out of North America. I fully understand the devastation that can happen if this enters the North American market in any of our countries. The fact of the matter is we're shut out of our hog exports, and that would be disastrous. That was Canadian Ag Minister Lawrence McCauley, who discussed the issue with his counterparts from Mexico and the United States at USDA's recent Agricultural Outlook Forum. Minister McCauley mentioned the uh, tremendous economic issues that that would create among all of us. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue outlined some of the work that needs to be done. We have to communicate what we're doing and our confinement protocols so the rest of the world, our customers around the world, would know that they would be safe from us spreading these types of things. USDA also will work to heighten producer awareness and encourage self-evaluations of on-farm biosecurity procedures, as well as continue talks with the U.S. pork industry to make sure anti-African swine fever efforts are coordinated. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You may have heard about it, but what is it? We're talking about carbon farming. One of the participants in the program here in California is Bruce Rominger. Bruce and his brother Rick of Rominger Brothers Farms outside Winters are currently conducting experiments on sequestering carbon in the soil. 
What are the pros and cons? What are the benefits? Bruce Rominger explains. Well, carbon farming is basically trying to get carbon out of the atmosphere, CO2, as carbon one carbon molecule, or atom with two oxygens, and you get that underground. And people, well, how do you do that? Well, that's what plants do. Plants take in CO2 and they emit the oxygen. Well, what happens to the carbon atom? It goes into the plant itself. The structure of plant, wood, plants is mostly carbon. Well, humans are mostly carbon too. It's the building block of organic matter, of living matter on this planet. But carbon, when it's taken into a plant, quite a bit of it is gone, that goes down into the soil as the roots also. And when that plant dies or harvested or something, there's carbon that stays in the ground that has been moved out of the air into the ground by that living plant. So theoretically, if you manage your soil right to preserve that carbon, you can build up the amount of carbon in your soil. And that's basically the organic matter, the percentage of soil that has is organic is the carbon for the most part in your soil. There's a huge amount of benefit to that. For one thing, you're pulling carbon dioxide out and you're putting it in the soil, which is called sequestering carbon because it's more stable and more permanent in the soil. Anything you can do to build up your organic matter in your soil is helping the entire planet by pulling carbon out of the air, lowering the percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere. It sounds great. Sounds like it's a win-win for all because higher organic matter soils are more fertile. They're easier to farm, better water infiltration, a whole bunch of pluses. It's kind of hard to do in most situations to do it economically. It's not as quite as simple and straightforward as I've just described it when you're trying to grow a crop and make money. We would all love to be able to build up the organic matter on our soil. We're trying to do that. It's a long, slow process. And in our climate with these dry, dry summers that are really good for growing a lot of crops, it's hard to build up organic matter in soils with these long, hot, dry summers. We're working on it. We're trying to do it. There's thought down the road that you will be able to get paid for that. And there is a few protocols out there that are accepted um, where you can get paid a little bit in, in managing rice in a certain way. You can get a, a carbon payment. There's some forestry practices in the timber industry where you can't. It's it's an ongoing process where we're learning how to do it. It's, it's something that agriculture worldwide can eventually play a big role, I think, in pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and lowering CO2, but it's not a real easy, quick process. We all have to figure out our own system to make it work in, in our crop rotation, in our location, and with our soils, a lot of variables. Recently, Bruce and Rick Rominger of Rominger Brothers Farm won the National Hugh Hammond Bennett Award for Conservation Excellence. The Romingers farm over 6,500 acres outside Winters. The Romingers are fifth-generation farmers who raise sheep, wine grapes, processing tomatoes, rice, wheat, corn, safflower, onions, alfalfa, oat hay, and almonds. And to keep their land healthy and productive, the brothers have installed 22 conservation practices to address resource issues like water management, soil erosion, manure management, and more. Your image of organic likely comes from the supermarket, grocery store, or farmer's market. As you shop for items, produced organically like produce, milk and dairy products, meat, even some grains.
But what you may not picture is that among the row crops grown organically are two mostly considered connected to conventional agriculture, the major commodity crops, corn and soybeans. Yet as Iowa State University Extension's Kathleen Dellett explains from a crop acreage and value perspective. There's close to 30,000 acres of organic corn in Iowa that's valued at $27 million. Soybeans, we have about 21,000 acres valued at $15 million. U.S. production is 214,000 acres of organic corn and about 125,000 of organic soybeans. She says consumers may not even realize that if they already buy and eat organic meats, dairy, and cereals, a lot of our commodity crops, corn and soybean, oats, go into those products or feed those animals. And if you think that organic corn and soybeans are hidden items among the many organic food products out there these days, Dellett says you are not alone. Take a side-by-side -side comparison of, say, an organic cornfield with a conventional one. When you cross the landscape, you can't really see much difference between organic corn and soybeans. While with organic vegetables, it's pretty obvious. I think the organic vegetable farms are much more diversified. You see a lot, for example, flowering plants out there to attract beneficial insects, and they're just a lot more diversified. Well, on an organic row crop farm, you're going to see three to four crops, corn, soybean, oats, alfalfa, or you might see barley or another pasture crop, but in general, they look pretty similar to conventional. Even among farmers, or those who have a close-up view of agriculture, at least in her home state, it's hard to tell the difference between conventional and organic crops. This summer, people have said to me, that must be your organic plots, but in fact, it's the conventional plots because they're seeing more herbicide resistance and there's a lot more weeds out in the conventional fields this summer. Another way you probably tell a difference between conventional and organic-based food items in the store shelves is the price. Dellett admits that premium price point is why growers enter into the organic ag sector in the first place. Yet she observes that growers who need to make at least a three-year commitment to transition from conventional to organic production for certification purposes learn of other benefits to their operation. They start to see the environmental benefits once they transition. They notice there's more beneficial insects back on the farm. There's higher soil quality and they might also notice things like improved water quality if they have a creek running through their farm. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Natural Resources Conservation Service can help organic livestock producers with practices such as pasture and grazing management, diverse pasture plantings, fencing, walkways, watering facilities, even shelters for animals. Here's more information from the NRCS. The USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service can assist organic livestock and poultry producers with valuable conservation tools. Tools that preserve natural resources and biodiversity while offering valuable ecosystem services for wildlife and fish. These producers provide their animals with access to outdoors according to resilient forage-based grazing practices required in organic farming. Properly managed grazing land dramatically increases the soil's ability to obtain moisture and nutrients while increasing soil organic matter and can be done organically without the addition and cost of prohibited fertilizers and pesticides. Diverse plantings on grazing lands provide livestock with a well-balanced, nutritious diet and keeps them healthy. Using season-specific plantings, like warm and cool season grasses and legumes, is also good for the ecosystem. A key feature in any forage-based system is rotational grazing. This approach breaks fields into a series of closed paddocks separated by fences. 
the size of these paddocks is determined by factoring the number of animals, time of year, grazing duration, and quality of available forage. Proper fencing and adequate water supplies are also a key feature of these intensively managed grazing systems. Fences can control erosion or impede animal access to sensitive areas like ponds, streams, wellheads, or protected habitat. While gated paddocks can be opened and closed to quickly provide cattle with access to fresh pasture. Movable fences can also be used to continually make available fresh pasture. As these animals graze, farmers can use tools like pasture sticks to assess the quality of available forage. They can measure the optimum height and density of grasses and monitor stubble height when farmed organically, intensively manage rotationally grazed cattle, also provide livestock producers with a variety of energy and cost savings. By no longer using synthetic nitrogen and reducing or eliminating the need to transport off-site feed. And because they recycle nutrients directly in the field instead of at a feedlot, they turn manure into a valuable fertilizer instead of a contamination risk for local waterways. Farmers with excess manure can work with their local NRCS conservationists to develop a nutrient management plan tailored to their farm's specific needs. NRCS conservation plans can also help farmers develop silvopasture with extended field borders and riparian buffers to control erosion and further reduce the transport of nutrients, pesticides, pathogens, and agrochemicals into local waterways. To learn more about grazing, pasture management, diverse pasture plantings, nutrient management plans, and related livestock conservation practices such as watering facilities, contact your local NRCS office where we can help you help your land organically. For more information, visit the NRCS website, nrcs.usda.gov organic. I'm looking forward to putting E15 in my car when we're rolling into the summer months again. And Iowa corn farmer Kevin Ross, through the National Corn Growers Association, and others have led efforts to make E15 blended fuels available at the pumps, not just in the summer months, but all year round. And the latest step in that progress was announced this week by the Environmental Protection Agency, formal proposal of its year-round E15 rule. That means E15 would be sold without reed vapor pressure controls currently in place during the summer months. The goal remains having the rule formally adopted and year-round E15 available before the start of the 2019 summer driving season. But Ross says supporters of ethanol must continue to expand biofuel infrastructure and market availability to motorists. Flat out, it's great to see it move forward, but to really make the impact to the market in the future, we're going to need more stations. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Changes of seasons usually means a change of your outdoor power equipment. As spring approaches, you might be firing up the lawnmower one more time. Perhaps as fall or winter approaches, you might be starting that chainsaw because you have to because of a downed tree. Or if the electricity goes out during a winter storm, you pull out the generator, it doesn't start. 
What's the problem usually? It's the fuel. We're talking with Chris Kaiser. He's president and CEO of OPEI, the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute. And first of all, Chris, let's talk about the OPEI. What is its goal? What is, what is sure, the mission? Sure, Fred. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. The Outdoor Power Equipment Institute is the trade association for equipment manufacturers. So our manufacturers make the things you just described, chainsaws, mowers, generators, chippers, shredder, grinders, water pumps, anything um, that runs on an engine. But we also have all kinds of power sources. So certainly a lot of new battery stuff in the marketplace, electric in the marketplace, propane, diesel, electric, hybrids, even we make robotic mowers that are solar powered. So we have a wide range of uh, power sources, and it's all the equipment you buy for outdoors and to provide power in an emergency setting. You have a wonderful website as well, OPEI.org, where people can get a lot of tips about maintaining their uh, power equipment for their yard, garden, or farm. And uh, probably this time of year, as we go into spring here, it's uh, it's time to fire up the lawnmower. Maybe it's been sitting dormant for a while and it doesn't start and maybe there was fuel sitting in that mower over the winter. And as you point out, uh, that's not such a great idea to leave uh, fuel in, a, in an engine. Fred, you've keyed in on probably the most important aspect of maintaining outdoor power equipment. It's the fuel. So if you're using gasoline product, one of the keys now is to know the fuel you're using. Uh, and it's in particular important to where you are in the country. What's happened is the federal government has gotten involved in mandating the inclusion of ethanol in your fuel. So depending where you are, where you live, and how much ethanol is in your fuel can can essentially dictate how long that fuel will stay fresh. Stale fuel is problem fuel. And so ethanol is alcohol. And if you bring put alcohol into your gasoline, um, it's hygroscopic, which means it absorbs water. So as it sits... It absorbs water. Once it absorbs enough water, the fuel phase separates. It just pulls apart. It divides into, into fuel and water. Water's heavier. It flows to the bottom of the tank, and you pull that in the engine, and it'll fail or not run well. Plus, you're bringing water into the engine, which is a problem. So the key is the fuel. The, the equipment's probably going to be fine. They're used to sitting for long periods of time. A lot of our stuff is seasonal use, so chainsaw, mower, snow thrower, Portable generator, you want them to run when there's an emergency. Water pumps that deal with floods. And so the key there is, again, know your fuel. No fuel should be left for more than 90 days. Best thing to do is 30 days. Um, you should not keep fuel. So at the end of the season, run your equipment dry. Just run it out. Let it sit dry. Then you'll be in a much better position in the spring or winter when you're pulling those back out. And use a fuel stabilizer, something that deals with the alcohol and the fuel. Not so much of a problem for automobiles, but it's certainly a problem for seasonal stuff and stuff in a marine environment or where it's wet. So boat users have a significant problem with ethanol in their fuels because they're in a marine environment. Same thing with snow machines, you know, motorcycles, stuff that's seasonal use. you got to be mindful now. One more thing, and I know it's, it's, quite a, it's a mouthful here on ethanol, but ethanol is also in the marketplace in multiple um, concentrations for a subset of the auto fleet. They're called blender pumps. You can dial up your amount of ethanol to E15, E30, E85, depending on where you live and what you're driving. If you have a flex fuel automobile engine, remember, oftentimes, whatever you put in the car, you put in the can. Remember? In the jerry can. And the can went home and you put it in the mower and the snow thrower. 
in the generator. That's no longer the case. You simply can't do it. Ethanol has less energy in it. It's oftentimes cheaper. So the more ethanol in the fuel, the cheaper the fuel, but the less energy, the more likely it'll give you trouble. So if you have a flex fuel engine in a subset of the auto fleet, I know it's a mouthful, don't put it in the jerry can. Up to 10% ethanol for essentially anything non-road, and that's a government requirement. That's the lawful requirement. E-Zero to E-10 for all non-road. All other stuff has to go into subsets of the auto fleet. So when people are at the gas station and they're looking at the pumps, they should uh, look for that decal that says uh, the ethanol content might be E-10, not E-15 or E-30. Absolutely, Fred. When we're used to buying octane, right, so the pumps we're used to looking at, 87, 89, 91, we're used to looking at octane. But the label you've just described is now critically important. You'll see a label contains up to 10% ethanol or an E15, or then you'll see a flex fuel label for everything else for flex fuel autos. But as you might suspect, it doesn't do a very good job of educating the consumer. So we're glad folks like you were talking about it. So look for the E10. Now, you mentioned yes, you mentioned Octane, and I've received differing reports from uh, different repair agencies about which Octane to use in your small engine equipment. Some say 87, some say 89, some say 91. I've ha- I haven't heard anybody say 93 yet. In your estimation, wh- what is the best octane for the uh, outdoor power equipment? Rule of thumb is, um, because again, I have 100 members. We sell about 30 million units a year. Um, remember, there's a size and class of products for everybody, man, woman, young, old, strong, weak. Outdoor power equipment comes in every size, every configuration, every weight, every power. Like you can get a small electric chainsaw or you can get the big, heavy forestry beast. Um, And they're very, very different. So the key is read your owner's manual because the engine classification could be different. Uh, We have about a thousand engine families that are regulated by EPA in California. Our stuff's regulated for emissions and EVAP, just like cars. And so you've got lots and lots of variations. And so the key, again, know your product, read your owner's manual. But rule of thumb on outdoor power equipment, it'll run essentially on any octane. Uh, Octane is not necessarily the problem. If it's at the pump, it's likely okay, with the exception of that ethanol content. That's where you run into trouble. But on the octane side, most outdoor power equipment will run just fine. Those higher octanes are not necessarily needed only because it's typically for a higher performance or a higher compression engine. And that's usually not the case with most outdoor power equipment. But you can get some pretty big stuff with outdoor power equipment. You'll get some electronic fuel injection in there. It may be uh, suggested or required. And again, the key is reading your owner's manual. Now, you mentioned stabilizers earlier, and a lot of people will take that shortcut before the uh, season for that particular piece of equipment may end. They may have gas still in the tank, and they'll throw some stabilizer in there thinking the fuel will be okay through the winter. True or false? False. Um, Part of it is where you live. What's the variation in temperatures? Uh, What is the humidity? Uh, how much moisture is in the air. But rule of thumb, it will it will stabilize and it will help, but it will not hold it for a season. Uh, you should not let fuel sit in a product for a season or for, you know, beyond 30 days. And the best uh, option is to uh, run the equipment until it's totally out of fuel. Run it dry and then just uh, park it. should be just fine. Uh, get fresh fuel for the spring or winter, whatever you're bringing into, uh, into use. 
uh, start with uh, new fuel. There's also fuel options, a lot of fuel now. You'll see it at the big box, your Lowe's, Home Depot's, uh, et cetera, uh, where it's there are all kinds of different brands, but it's E0. You know, it's pure fuel. And uh, that has an extremely ext- uh, long shelf life, extended shelf life. Now, if you're using a fuel like that, which is designed specifically for marine, snowmobiles, outdoor power equipment, that kind of stuff, it's a little pricier. But if you do buy it, it has an extended shelf life and you won't have the same kind of problems. Uh, two-stroke versus four-stroke engines. There's still a lot of two-stroke engines on the market, leaf blowers, chainsaws, uh, weed whackers, whatever. What special considerations uh, for two-stroke motor owners are there? Special needs, uh, oftentimes a two-stroke. Again, these are all emissions regulated. So whether it's a four-stroke or two-stroke, they're all emissions compliant with your you know, respective state and national regulation. Um because you need certain some kinds of power, there's a lot of applications where two-stroke is very, very useful. Let's say, for instance, in your chainsaw. Well, that means you're using a gasoline oil mix. And here again, the ethanol is critically important. As you add ethanol into a petroleum-based fuel, uh, and you're mixing that petroleum-based fuel with oil, those four carbon atoms, they'll get married, they'll mix and stay married and be happy. You put alcohol into that mix, it destabilizes it. It makes it less likely to stay mixed over time. So not only does it have the historic issues with as being an alcohol, runs hotter, absorbs water, uh, misshapens elastomers, and is a problem to some plastics, um, it now inhibits that mix. So again, if you're blending fuel with oil for a two-stroke product, and that fuel has higher contents of ethanol, you're going to have a problem or more likelihood of a problem over time. So if you can, be mindful of when you mix the fuel, how long you're using it, how long it's going to stay in the jerry can. Or there again, you can use a zero-content ethanol fuel to mix with the oil, and it's going to stay mixed longer. Now remember, some of these products, like fire, every firehouse in the country has chainsaws and like a portable generator. You want them to run when there's an emergency or when you need them. And that's the real challenge. You have to plan for that. So you just can't let them sit. And you can buy a premix now. When I mentioned that Eero, that's E0 content fuel, you can also buy a premixed fuel, um, which is the same thing. It's going to have 0% ethanol already premixed in a can, and it has a much more, much longer shelf life. And so, again, if it's an emergency-use product or limited-use product, are highly seasonal, you might want to consider that. Chris Kaiser, he's president and CEO of OPEI, the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute. Chris, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you, Fred. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.